You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, thanks for coming back. I tell this is the end of the course. I can't believe it. It's, it has been so much fun. So, uh, got a lot of good stuff today. I gotta, I gotta get the book finished, don't I? Because <laughs> this is, this is it. But thank you very much. So I think we left off on 146. And, uh, and so Binks is stuck between two worlds, right? I mean, his, you know, his, uh, the bowling family, his, his dead father's family, they're, all, they're atheists and it's all public service people. And then you've got his mother, She's with the Smith, her new marriage, and of course that's uh, picked the Smith name because it's so it's the most average, ordinary. That's what he's trying to expand. And they're very religious, but they just start, you know, they're talking about, you know, just kind of mindless stuff. And so, uh, but he does say in that, you know, he's got a little journal going. Yet it's impossible to rule God out. So he's trying to Binks is trying to find his way to God through his malaise, through all the depression there, okay? And uh, and he's talking to his mother here, and she says, you're just like your father. I noticed last night how much you favor him. And that's why she can't look at him. You know, he, last class, he came to see his mom, and oh, he just, he is so messed up, and he just needs his mama. I, I talked about Quentin Compson in The Sound of the Fury. Hey, good to see you again. If I could just say mother. But she doesn't look at him. You know, she'll be right in front of him, but it's kind of like on the metro or whatever. You just look a little bit to the side. And, and she doesn't touch with her hands, but she touches her wrist. But you know, I understand her side. If looking at her son, she sees her dead husband. See, that's, that's hard. That's just really hard. So I, I, and she's trying so hard to make a new start with things. And so he tries to have a good conversation with mom here. He's asked, was he a good husband? Sometimes I try not too seriously to shake her loose from her elected career of the commonplace, but her gyroscope always holds her own course. Good. Well, I'll tell you one thing. He was a good walker. I mean, there it is. This, I mean, was he a good man? <clears throat> and then you get the existentialism. Well, he sure could walk. People, people, we're out walking a lot now. We have a, we have somebody says, "You want me to buy your car?" I mean, it's just like, oh, they feel sorry for us. Well, was he a good doctor? Was he? <clears throat> and what hands? If anyone ever had the hands of a surgeon, uh, and so it's uh, again, she just uh, gets back to the ordinary. As a bowling in Feliciana Parish, I, become a cu- I became accustomed to sitting on a porch in the dark and talking on the size of the universe and the treachery of men. As a smith on the Gulf Coast, I've become accustomed to eating crabs and drinking beer under a 150-watt bulb. And one is, as, one is as pleasant a way as the other of passing a summer night. So he's in, caught between two very <coughs> different families, you know, his, his dead father's family, two different worlds. Um, for years, my mother has thrown it out as a kind of proverb that I should marry Kate Couture, which is foreshad- foreshadows the end of the book, doesn't it? We do have some happiness there. And then mom talks about, his father kind of had that malaise. She says, got sick. When he got sick the next time, I couldn't help him. Why not? She smiles. He said, my treatment was like horse serum. You can use it only once. What did happen? The war came. That ha- that helped? 
He helped himself. He'd been in bed for a month up in your room. There's that depression that, you know, Percy's, Percy's father shot himself. Percy's grandfather shot himself. Percy himself battled depression all his life, but uh, he, w he would not succumb. He said, I'm not going to do that to my children, what was done to me. <clears throat> I asked him, what, is, what has happened? What has happened? Why Germany has invaded Poland and England and France has declared, have declared war. <clears throat> I'm here to tell you that in 30 minutes, he'd eaten his breakfast, packed a suitcase, and gone to New Orleans. Well, again, there's that, what Flannery O'Connor called it, it is the extreme situation that shows what we are essentially. Sometimes we are at our best when things are at their worst. And up in Huntsville, you know, that Category 5 tornado that came through and, you know, hit Jones Valley Elementary and you, you know, you see people just rising to the challenge. I mean, there was a, there was a guy after that tornado, he was there and one shopping center was kind of wiped out and a flying piece of sheet metal severed one of his arms and he bandaged that and he was there reaching in the rubble to, to save lives. So sometimes it's the, uh, extreme situation has to bring out the best that we have to do what we wanted to do and to save old England doing it and perhaps even carry off the grandest coup of all to die well see there the, I look at the casualties that like Vietnam and different wars the south has always provided good soldiers and part of it's the hunting background people know how to shoot but again part of it's just that love of land and love of country. There are a lot of good things about the Old South. We've always had good soldiers. <clears throat> and then Bink shows one of his wounds here. He says, During the war, a bad thing happened to me. We were retreating from the Chongchon River, this Korea. We'd stopped the Chinese by setting fire to the grass with tracer bullets. He's part of a ranger company. And those are bad dudes. I mean, he was a good soldier himself. The rangers, <clears throat> y'all know Puente Hoke? Correct my pronunciation, but you know, in D-Day and oh, the Rangers ones that went up there and scaled those cliffs with, you know, the Germans shooting down at them to, to, to take out those two ginormous guns that the Germans had, which had just wreaked havoc on, havoc on the, on the invasion force there. <clears throat> and, uh, you can still go there, okay? And you still have those pillboxes there and you still have the craters and the rusted barbed wire and, and a, I remember a, memorial to you know colonel james whoever who led those rangers and they they held on for five days and they were almost all dead or wounded but they held on for five days till we could get reinforcements there <clears throat> i was supposed to being talking about i was supposed to go back to the crossroad and tell the ranger company about the change i got back there and waited half an hour and got so cold i went to sleep when i woke up it was daylight all i knew is that something terrible terribly wrong what happened to them they got cut off you mean they were all killed well there wasn't much left of them in the first place well that's why he can't sleep right he can't sleep because when he falls when he sleeps people die okay so he's got that horrible insomnia that guilt that's just uh oh terrible thing to live with there <clears throat> and then uh he he goes and kate's gone he goes in to, to see Kate, goes to Kate's door. I kicked the door down. Kate was in bed and deeply asleep. When I see she's taking sleeping pills and overdosed and trying to kill herself there. And half of the stuff I teach, I pick up for my students. You teach long enough, you pick up a lot of good things. <clears throat> of course, the language doesn't change that much but in French, but... Uh, 
status to point out. Well, she's a Kate's a doppelganger, a spiritual double for Binks there. You know, that whole sleeping issue um, and the guilt she has of uh, her fiance dying. They the day before the, uh, the the wedding there. But her breathing was quite shallow. That's 172. And there was a bottle of capsules open on the table. So they're both battling their demons, but they're going to fight their way to each other. And these two damaged people are going to find happiness together. And he talks about how her soul is in her eyes. Well, that's Poe, isn't it? You know, the eyes of the gateway of the soul. You, don't y'all look in eyes and you can see... Um, you know, a lot about a person just through the eyes. Uh, and she says, after Chicago, do you think there's a possibility we might take a trip out west and stay for a while in some little town like Modesto or Fresno? Well, well, there's that, that old frontier idea. Go west, young man. You know, the <clears throat> for so long, just going out there, thing, uh, the Great Gatsby, go out west you know, clean the liver out, get away from some of this big city corruption and go out there and, you know, run a ranch or something. It's just life seems to be a little bit, be a little bit cleaner <clears throat> out there. Kate is shaking like a leaf, 190, because she longs to be any and anyone who is anywhere and she cannot. I mean, just she just wants to be somebody. Uh, Rita... E.E. E. Cummings' poem. I wish I could do it now. Anyone lived in a pretty Howe town. And it's a great poem and almost impossible to understand. But if you keep going back over and over it, it's, uh, it's a great poem about that, to be somebody. So they start talking. Kate and Binks are finding their way to each other, 192. And uh, she says, I'm all right. I'm never too bad with you. You know, Binks makes Kate feel better. <laughs> he said, well, why don't I make you feel better? She says, <clears throat> you're nuttier than I am. <laughs> I, that's kind of a backhanded compliment, but hey, it's a compliment. One look at you and I have to laugh. Do you think that is sufficient ground for marriage? <laughs> and he says, good as any, better than love. I mean, <clears throat> you make each other feel good. And she says, suicide is the only thing that keeps me alive. I mean, that oxymoron, isn't that sad? It's, just, it's a little funny, but it's also sad. <clears throat> Whenever everything else fails, all I have to do is consider suicide, and in two seconds, I'm as cheerful as a nitwit. It's just, <clears throat> again, this is the kind of thing that I, people reading the book, they say, I'm not sure I understand <laughs> the book, but it's uh, there's the Catholic existentialism. I think of Sylvia Plath, you know, Poor Sylvia, one of the greatest female poets we ever had, and she kept trying to commit suicide. But every time she had a suicide plan, she had somebody there that was there to stop her. Right? So she, she, you know, she had chemical stuff in her head, I'm sure, and other things. <clears throat> but the third time, um, you know, she she put her head in a gas oven to breathe the gas because of the guilt she felt about her father being a German. And this is after all the after World War II, all the stuff came out about the Jews. But she had a guy who's supposed to come there at ten o'clock and, and and see her. Okay, part of her desperately wanted to live, but his alarm clock didn't go off. So we lost one of our greatest poets in a human life <clears throat> because of a darn alarm clock. Ah. <clears throat> But don't don't we all kind of have a, a way out 
you know, sometimes to, to, to get out of bad stuff, don't you have kind of maybe a little escape thing? I remember with, <clears throat> this is a weird analogy, but with distance running and the, oh, the, the toughest runs in college and, <clears throat> excuse me, and when you, you think like, I can't make it. You know, I'm one mile in, I'm tired, I've got three more miles to run or whatever. And if you think of like, I've got to make this whole race, this whole life, there's no way I can do it. But if you've got some way to escape, like, okay, you say, I can quit anytime I want to. Okay, you, you, and I never did quit, but you've got to have that out. I can quit anytime I want to, but first take one more step. And I mean, that's kind of this, kind of a, a good analogy for life. I mean, when I went through tough, when you, everybody goes through tough times, you say, okay, you can quit anytime you want to, but first take one more step. And you take enough of those one more steps, you get there, right? <clears throat> you get across the finish line. Okay, let's see. 204. Some years later, after Scott's death, now again, that's another one of his wounds. He lost his brother Scott, like Holden Caulfield, losing Allie in the catch in the rhyme. We came, <clears throat> we came, my father and I, to the Field Museum. Y'all been in the Field Museum, Chicago? They got those giant lions from Ghosts in the Darkness. Y'all see that movie? They just, oh, just ate so many people. A long, dismal peristyle dwindling into the howling distance. And inside, inside stood a tableau of a Stone Age man, father, <clears throat> father and child, crouched around an artificial ember in the posture of the mortuary. There, anyway, he sees a statue, a cave thing. And then he sees is one of those very special father and son we were that summer. He was staking his everything this time on a perfect comradeship. And I, seeing in his eyes the terrible request requiring from me this his very life, I, through a child's cool perversity or some atavistic recoil from an intimacy too intimate, Turned him down, <clears throat> turned away, refused him what I knew I could not give. More guilt. So they're they're watching, <clears throat> send some kind of tableau thing, you know, of a, of a cave family. There's a father and son, right? And then he sees his father turn and look at him like just some little thing, like you're a good dad. Just I'm, something as simple as that. But <clears throat> he was a teenager. <laughs> I mean, don't we all look back and say, I wish I'd said that to my dad or my mom or somebody. And then you lose them. And then you just, oh, it's, it's a wound that won't heal there, isn't it? So, so he's, got, he's got that physical wound, you know, the scar from Korea. But worse than that, he's got some invisible wounds inside. And we meet on 210 Harold Grebner. Do y'all remember him? Harold Grebner uh, saved his life. And... Uh, for that, here again is that Catholic existentialism. Harold always feels like he's in his debt. Harold's always doing nice things for Binks, like he makes him the godfather of his what firstborn child or whatever. And what Binks forgets, he he misses the service. And that well, he's, he's Harold says he's godfather by proxy. <laughs> There's again that that sense of humor. <clears throat> On 210, I tell Kate and Veronica how Harold saved my life, telling it joking with only one or two looks around at him. It's too much for him. Not my gratitude, not the beauty of, my own, of his own heroism, but the sudden confrontation of a time past, a time so terrible and splendid in its arch reality, and a long lost cut adrift like a great ship. It's too much for him. He shakes his head like a fighter. So here... Binks should be indebted to Harold, but Harold feels 
in his death there and and Binks lets him down. But he Binks thanks Harold, I think, because he can't thank his father now. He still feels guilty for not thanking his father there at the Field Museum. <clears throat> and then, oh, the police find Kate's car at the terminal. So she's been out. The police, and he, Emily tells him, that, Aunt Emily, Kate did not tell anyone she was leaving. However, her behavior is not unexplainable and therefore not inexcusable. Yours is. Boy, Aunt Emily, she can just drill you, can't she? I'm silent. Why didn't you tell me? You know, like the Kate's at risk, I think. I can't remember. Bless, bless his heart. I mean, he's just, he's just barely coping, staying alive with things. And then we get to the best part of the whole book here. 219. Now, you need to find this. Here we get to the dramatic climax. <clears throat> this whole book's to, you know, to, to get us, you know, to write these final pages here. And here we see his Uncle Will, really his cousin, but Uncle Will talked. Here are the old Southern values. And some of this may not be, you know, totally politically correct now, but a lot of it I agree. When we start talking about honor and character, you know, doing the right thing when you know nobody's watching, you know, some of these words have kind of maybe fallen out of favor. But boy, that's, that's, the, that's what I started my classes with every year, talking about, you know, honor code and plagiarism and don't, you know, most precious thing you have is your good name and don't ever sacrifice that. Well, that's Aunt Emily. I mean, these people who would just, uh, you know, just take a stand and, and die for this. You know, they were, had a poll recently about how many of us would, would, would stay and defend America, would fight like the Ukrainians, okay? Well, here's... <clears throat> Aunt Emily gives him his, her last best shot, okay? This is it. <clears throat> Both barrels, 219, chapter 5. She says... I'm not saying that I pretend to understand you. Have y'all ever had these come to Jesus meetings with their parent? It's just, it's when they call you by your, they use your full name. That's, that's where you know you gotta run fast as you can, alright? What I am saying is that after two days of complete mystification, it has at last dawned on me what it is I fail to understand. That is at least a step in the right direction. It was the novelty of that put me off, you see. I do believe you have discovered something new under the sun. So he's then in with Aunt Emily here. <clears throat> 221. Discovery that someone in whom you had placed great hopes was suddenly not there. Oh, okay, that's... What's the worst word your parents can use with you, okay? We're not mad. The D word. When you use the, <clears throat> that, I don't think I ever said that. I found it over my boy said, what could I have done different? Said you were disappointed. I said, oh, that's, we're not mad. We're just disappointed. Oh, no. Beat me. <clears throat> <clears throat> it was like leaning on what seems to be a good stalwart shoulder and feeling it go all mushy and queer. The fact that you are a stranger to me is perhaps my fault. Oh, it's my fault there. It was stupid of me not to believe it earlier. For now I do believe that you are not capable of caring for anyone. Kate, Jules, or myself. Two, two, two. Here we go. Here's the best page of the whole book. This is the heart of the story, as Flannery called it. Were you intimate 
with Kate. Now, this is old Southern morality, right? Intimate, that's the thing, you always repeat the charge, right? While you're, you're desperately trying to think of an answer. Yes. Uh, not very. I ask you again. Were you intimate with her? Well, I suppose so, though intimate is not quite the word. All these years, I've been assuming that between us, words mean roughly the same thing. That among certain folk, gentle folk, I don't mind calling them, there exists a set of meanings held in common. That a certain manner and a certain grace come as naturally as breathing. At the great moments of life, success, failure, marriage, death, our kind of folks have always possessed a native instinct for behavior, a natural piety or grace. I don't mind calling it. Whatever else we did or failed to do, we always had that. It kind of reminds me of Thomas Jefferson. You know, he, he believed in aristocracy of talent. Okay, that some people are just smarter. They're better looking, they're more athletic and all this stuff. But that doesn't mean you get arrogant about it. It means you have a greater responsibility to give something back. He didn't want to be president of the United States. He was fine in Monticello inventing Xerox machines and everything they doing there. He didn't, ha he didn't have to do that. Uh, no bless oblige is called something. You, you need to give something back. To, to whom much is given, much is required, right? I'll make you a little confession. I am not ashamed to use the word class. I will also plead guilty to another charge. The charge is that people belonging to my class think they're better than other people. You're damn right we're better. Now, that's the part that's going to fly over some people, okay? I don't feel like I'm better than anybody. <clears throat> but I get what she's saying. We're better because we do not shirk our obligations either to ourselves or to others. We do not whine. Do you get tired of whiners? I mean, everybody's a victim. Or just buck up and do better next time. We do not organize a minority group or blackmail the government. We do not prize mediocrity for mediocrity's sake. There's what is, what is the common man. And when I say common, I mean common as hell. Pardon my French there. Our civilization has achieved a distinction of sorts. It will be remembered not for its technology, nor even its wars, but for its novel ethos. Ours is the only civilization in history which is enshr has enshrined mediocrity as its national ideal. I mean, I, I love, go for excellence. Be the best that you can. I'm with you, Emily. Others have been corrupt. But leave it to us to invent the most undistinguished of corruptions. True, our moral fiber is rotten. Our national character stinks to high heaven. But we are kinder than ever. What is new is that our, in our time, liars and thieves and whores and adulterers wish also to be congratulated and are congratulated by the great public. If their confession is sufficiently psychological or strikes a sufficiently heartfelt and authentic note of sincerity. Oh, we are sincere. I do not deny it. I don't know anybody nowadays who is not sincere. We are the most sincere Laodiceans who ever got flushed down the sinkhole of history. No, my young friend, I'm not ashamed to use the word class. 
They say out there, we think we're better. You're damn right we're better. <clears throat> and let me tell you something. If he out yonder is your prize exhibit for the progress of the human race, I guess that's that caveman, right? In the past 3,000 years, then all I can say is that I'm content to be fading out of the picture. But one here, this, now this is good writing here. But one thing I am sure of, we live by our lights, we die by our lights. And whoever the high gods may be, we'll look them in the eye without apology. Now see, anybody be proud of that line, wouldn't they? Now my aunt swivels around to me and to, to face me and not so bad humoredly. I did my best for you, son. Now see, that's son. He's been, he lost his dad. He lost his mom. She remarried went into another family. She's the closest he's had to a mom, right? I gave you all I had. More than anything, I wanted to pass on to you the one heritage of the men of our family, a certain quality of spirit, a gaiety, a sense of duty, a nobility worn lightly, a sweetness, a gentleness with women, the only good things the South ever had, and the only things that really matter in this life. Oh, well. Now, see, that's, that's one thing I love about Faulkner is that in his books, I mean, he hated racism. He hated slavery. I mean, nobody, I mean, he, he wrote letters to the Mississippi newspapers in the 50s and 60s, Emmett Till and all that, which was pretty brave at that time. But he could celebrate the good part. Sometimes I feel like the, all, everything about the old South is just thrown out. And there's so many good things, the honor and the courage and the love of land and the religion and family. And she's celebrating these old things that... We're smart to distinguish between the, you know, the good and the bad. Save the, celebrate the good and condemn the bad. Ah, well. Still, you can tell me one more thing. I know you're not a bad boy. I wish you were. It'd be easier for her to be mad at him, right? But how did it happen that none of this ever meant anything to you? Clearly it did not. Would you please tell me? I'm genuinely curious. You know, I've done this. Just This would just shred you, wouldn't it? I cannot tear my eyes from the sword. Years ago, I bent the tip trying to open a drawer. So, again, there's the Catholic existentialism. The Catholicism, we're talking about spiritual, great spiritual values here, important things, honor and pride and courage, all those great things that Faulkner celebrated. And he's just getting shredded. But he, all he can see is the, an, an old, a sword that's there in the, in the room, and he remembers bending the tip trying to pry a door open. So there's the, kind of the absurd thing. There's the existentialism, the, the bent orange peel, which is, and the lying in the gutter. Now, here's where I needed you, which is about, I remember from reading some early French existentialism, you know, Camus and Sartre says, life's no more important than a, a bent orange peel lying in a gutter. To me, that, that, resonated here and so there's that there's that part that kind of makes him uh, kind of hard to read sometimes like how do these two go together but again one of my students saying well there's the civil war this he picked a sword because there's a symbol of the civil war in fact that he's bent you could get into that too couldn't you okay uh and uh 
and Mercer, the black man, he, he the servant they've got, he start he starts the wax the waxer. He's starting to wax the floor. So look at the look at the juxtaposition of waxing the floor with Aunt Emily giving the greatest speech of her life right there, right? What has been going on in your mind, says Emily, during all the years when we listened to music together, read the Crito's, Plato, of course, and spoke together? Or was it only I who spoke of goodness and truth and beauty and nobility? Don't you love these things? Don't you live by them? No. What do you love? What do you live by? I'm silent. Tell me where I where I have failed you. Guys, that's not the worst. <clears throat> Tell me where we have failed you. We tried our best. Oh! I mean, just give me a sword. Let me kill myself now. Oh, God, that's so... I feel so sorry for him. <clears throat> you haven't. What do you think is the purpose of life? To go to the movies and dally with every girl that comes along? Of course, he doesn't have an answer. Well, I mean, and I've I've heard some Southern women they can pack so much, and well, it's just like when they just totally blow somebody off. They don't have to say anything insulting. Well, you know, I have you and just one in one syllable. Well, she smiles up at me, and this it marks an ending. But it is her withholding my name that assigns me my new status. So she might have spoken to any one of a number of remotely connected persons. So it's kind of like that's, that's the end there. So now, <clears throat> so today's my 30th birthday, just like Nick Carraway and the Great Gatsby. Now in the 31st year of my dark pilgrimage on this earth. Okay, uh, and I told you Jay Tolson, you want to read criticism? Jay Tolson's probably the world's best critic. He came to... Uh, Birmingham and stayed in the Percy House there on on Ridge Drive there and uh, his book is Pilgrim his biography is Pilgrim in the Ruins that's a really good one okay and so Bink says the Malays the central word there in Percy the Malays has settled like a fallout and what people really fear is not that the bomb will fall but that the bomb will not fall. There's that extreme situation. And so uh, we're, he's making a pilgrimage. And, you know, we started with Mardi Gras in the book. And now we're going to end on Ash Wednesday. For a long time, I've secretly hoped for the end of the world and believed with Kate and my aunt <clears throat> that an, only few could survive and creep out of their holes and discover themselves to be themselves and live as merrily as children among the viney ruins. You want to read about that? Read Love in the Ruins, as he spends a whole book on that. But as I said, it is is Ash Wednesday, and again, I think of you know T. S. Eliot's the you know the wasteland and all the Valley of Ashes and everything there, and the Great Gatsby. But it's uh, there's the Catholicism coming in as he's he's fighting his way, crawling up to find God, and then we go. Kind of, if you want the, the happy ending, that's about as happy as you're going to get with Walker Percy, 234. He and Kate, <coughs> Binks and Kate are together. She says, I'm frightened when I'm alone, and I'm frightened when I'm with people. The only time I'm not frightened is when I'm with you. You'll have to be with me a great deal.
Banks says, I will. Do you want to? Yes. I'll be under treatment a long time. I know that. And I'm not sure I'll ever change. Really change. You might. But I think I see a way, Kate says. It seems to me that if we're together a great deal, and if you tell me the simplest things and not laugh at me, I beg you for pity's own sake never to laugh at me. Tell me things like, Kate, it is all right for you to go down to the drugstore and give me a kiss. Then I'll believe you. Will you do that? Yes, I'll do that. <laughs> Pink says, but you must try not to hurt yourself so much, okay? If I do this, then you need to try to do that. And in that, in that so much what life is, we've got damaged people. We're all damaged, aren't we? We're all a little cracked about the head a little bit. But trying to find our way to somebody else who's damaged in some way and try to heal each other and help each other and prop each other up. That's, that's the family of man. That's, that's the way society works. We're just like, be like some one big family. And so anyway, we get, he receives ashes. Uh, one of my students here point out a quotation by Martin Luther King. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And so they're trying to, that's a pretty good line, trying to find a light to help drive out the darkness that's inside our souls here. <clears throat> uh, in June, Kate and I were married. My aunt has become fond of me. Now, <laughs> now she gave up on him, and they, she's a lot fonder now. As soon as she accepted what she herself had been saying all these years, that the Boeing family had gone to seed, and that I was not one of her heroes, <clears throat> but a very ordinary fellow, we got along very well. Both women find me comical and laugh at me. On Mardi Gras morning the next year, my uncle Jules, and Emily's husband, suffered a second heart attack and from which he later died. A few days after his 15th birthday, my half-brother, Lonnie Smith, the one in the wheelchair, I believe, died of a massive virus in infection. So you still got ashes and symbol of death, but it's also a symbol of religion in there. Denise, one of the Smith half-relatives, he says, when our Lord raises up on the last day, we'll he, a little child, he comes to Binks and says, when our Lord raises up on the last day, will Lonnie still be in a wheelchair? Or will he be like us? And Binks says, he'll be like us. He'll get his, he'll get his legs back. You mean he'll be, able, he'll be able to ski? Yes. Hooray, cry the twins. So, uh, so kind of got a little... Bink, he's, he's a good guy. And listen, if you want to read some good... <coughs> Religious poetry. Read four quartets. I mentioned a couple classes back. T.S. Eliot, four quartets, about the last thing he wrote. Little Gidding. I mean, you, he throws Dante in everything. Look at that. Sometimes you get lucky. All right, yes, ma'am. Question. Okay. I, having had a lot of life experiences. Yeah. I, how, do you do, how do you do this with teenagers, this book? Oh, this? About, like, about like that. <laughs> now, now these are seniors. This is part of a. I did this with I know, a. They still hadn't had any life experiences. You might be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ask, ask some of the. Yeah, back here. Yeah, how, give me a hallelujah. Amen. Here. They got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, seniors. Hard. Now, if I did this in ninth grade, it'd be. I'm. I, it wouldn't. It wouldn't work. Okay. Yeah. But the senior seminar, you uh -huh. know, uh, Southern Lit and stuff. Yeah. It's tough. You can make it. 
And you don't get everybody, but you try. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, not a not a long question answer stuff. I'm sorry. I haven't had this hustle get through. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Coming and a lot of all three times. And so I, I appreciate that. It's fun. And he can tell you all kinds of stories about the Percy House, right? The, Tony's back there. So all right, there you are. Okay. There you are. Hey, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I didn't see you back in the chair there. So there are secret, secret doors and nice gardens, the whole deal, right? <clears throat> well, you'll be giving a guided tour this afternoon, right? We can tie that in. Well, thank you, folks. Class dismissed. I'm gonna, I'll cancel the final exam. Thank you. Hey, y'all were great. It was fun. I loved it. Have a great day, okay? You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.